0: Hey, welcome to Progressions, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 44. Got a super cool interview coming at you today. We get into a ton of stuff that has not been discussed on the show before. And we have some good nerd outs as well, so definitely stick around for that. But first, without giving away too much, there was something my guest said about enabling people on his team to do their best work. Which also reminded me a bit about something my guest from episode 7, Aaron Barra, said about how she looks at teaching music as a way to empower and enable students to go out in the world and be their best, whether it's in music or not. And as I thought about it a bit, it came to me that those lines of thinking were a bit of a parallel to the way that I work as an engineer. When I'm working with people in a room, my goal is to always enable and inspire them to do their best work, whether that be by reducing barriers for an artist to get an idea down or just knowing when to leave the room because somebody needs creative space. There are a hundred things you can do in the studio to support somebody's creativity and be sure that they can do their best work. And reflecting back, I found that my most fulfilling and inspiring days in the studio were the days that I was able to do that for people. All of this ties together in the common theme of how enabling those around you to do their best work ultimately leads you to do your best work. And let's go a step further. Think about the people that you spend the most time with. Are they draining or are they inspiring? They are probably inspiring to you, and if they're not, send me a message, and I'll give you the cold, hard truth about what to do with those relationships. No, <laughs> but seriously, the people you enjoy spending the most time with probably challenge you intellectually, or stimulate you creatively, or support you in your endeavors, or something. Something positive happens, and better yet, a lot of something positive happens. And everybody connects in different ways. I'm not telling you that you need to be a specific type of person to empower those around you to be their best. You're already in relationships with people that are mutually empowering to each other. If you want an example of how different people connect and inspire each other, think of uh, education. Think of your favorite high school teacher. Now, think of all those people that couldn't stand that teacher. Or look at this podcast. Maybe you like this podcast. I mean, I hope so. You're listening to it. Or maybe you don't like this podcast. Maybe you're more inspired by another one. That's cool. So you're going to listen to that one. Same thing with books and movies. Some stories might inspire you more than others. Here's the real point of all this. We all gravitate towards people and things that inspire and enable us to be the best version of ourselves. And we get fulfillment out of being able to do the same for others. This opening is definitely more like a general revelation, a reminder type of thing than a uh, how to succeed in music thing. But I guess if there was a tip that came from all this, it would be, think about your relationships. Are you indeed surrounded by people that are bringing a positive energy to your journey? And in turn, are you doing the best you can to enable and empower them to kick ass on their journey? Is everybody working together to be the best? Keep this in mind when you're looking for collaborators and mentors. Look for people that you connect with and that inspire you to inspire them back. That's what you probably have in your family and your close friend circles already. So make sure you bring that to your career as well. Look for people who are empowered and inspired by what you're doing and who are looking to return the favor and build together. Remember, the more people you can help to be their best, the more you'll find yourself to be at your best. Today's guest, Corey Shreppel, is an engineer and mixer specializing in podcast and broadcast production. Currently, he's on the audio team for The New York Times, where he works on many of their narrative shows as well as their flagship show, The Daily. Prior to that, he was the technical director for Minnesota Public Radio and American Public Media. While on the APM podcast team, he worked on shows like In the Dark and Brains On, both of which have taken home awards in that space. And before his more than a decade of experience in broadcast, he worked as an audio production educator at Boston University and also as a recording engineer at the New England Conservatory of Music. So lots of stuff to get into that we have not talked about before. So welcome to the show, Corey Schreppel. Hey, Travis. Hey, Corey. How's it going? Good, man. Good to, it, good to talk to you. It's been a while. I know. It might be your entire broadcast career. It might be like 10 years.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's about right. I think the last time I saw you was... Uh... Was a wedding in California at some point, but yeah. So that, that sounds yeah. about right. That was before we moved to Minnesota. So absolutely. Okay, so you were not in
0: Minnesota. Okay, so nope. So we have we have a lot of ground to cover then. <laughs> <laughs>
1: How are things in general? You're good. Things are good. Things are good. Minnesota's been uh, been great. Um, you know, we've been here about pu- pushing eight years now, and um, we love every minute of it. My wife is from here, and I didn't think that I would ever end up in Minnesota or working in public media broadcasting space. But I got to tell you what, man, quality of life in Minnesota is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I can imagine. As you get older, quality of life and, you know,
0: time spent working and, and who you're working with, all those things like really, they take priority, you <laughs> know, over over the, the 20-hour grind. You know, I, I, I won't hammer on that because we're always talking about it on the show. But yep. I wanted to start in Boston. Mainly your time at New England Conservatory, because if I remember correctly, I don't know if we interned there together. I interned there and I think I actually got fired (laughs) after like a day or two because the studio manager, she sent me, I just, I vaguely remember getting an email that was like, I can't believe you don't respond to my emails. I didn't, you know, she was losing her mind because I wasn't checking email and I was just sitting there thinking to myself like... Who uses email because it was that long ago? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, so I didn't work there, but it looked fun.
1: Yeah. what was that like? Uh, what, what's interesting? Well, so it was a really great experience. Like I like I will be very frank, it was it was definitely a great space for a newer engineer to kind of cut their teeth a little bit in a fairly safe space. That's not how it ended up by the time I left, but at least that's what it was at the time. I don't think we had an internship program when I started there in 2007. So you may have been the, uh, the, the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of that program. Um, you know, it's just, what a way to go out. No, the, the, the gig there was great. It was mostly, so for those who don't know, New England Conservatory is a primarily a classical music conservatory, but they have a really killer jazz program and a thing called contemporary improvisation like Lake Street Dive came out of there. Uh, Sarah Jarosz, who's in the um, bluegrass folk space, she came out of there. I think I actually did PA for her freshman recital or something like that. But it, it's, it's this really great incubator. Cause unlike Berkeley, I mean, Travis, like we, we went to Berkeley and it was this kind of microcosm of the music industry and just several thousand people. But at right. NEC, they had maybe a thousand students total. And the caliber of those students were incredible. So I got really lucky that I was able to record these people and do live sound for them day after day and do sessions and live events. And so it was probably four or five nights a week recording full-size orchestras, chamber orchestras, jazz ensembles, jazz combos, and, you know, jazz legends like Dave Holland would come in, new music composers like Steve Reich would come in it was an amazing place to work. It wasn't without its issues, but it exposed me to a lot of stuff. And I was super lucky to get it. And I got, a, I got in on a recommendation um, from Mark Wessel, Berkeley professor that we all know and love. And yeah, that, that was pretty much my time there. And it was uh, just the repetition of doing the same thing over and over again with enough variables. Yeah. And I'm a classical percussionist um, in a former life. So it was a perfect <laughs> mashup for me to, you know, stretch those skills a little bit from an engineering angle where, you know, I knew how to read scores. I knew how to talk about specific composers and how to capture ensembles who were, you know, recording the repertoire of a specific composer. Cause I knew that So-and-so needed to be a little bit more ambient. Somebody else needed to be a little tighter. And um, and the concert hall, Jordan Hall, if you've never been to Jordan Hall in Boston, I think is one of the best sounding concert halls in the country, if not the world. Um, It's a small-ish, medium concert hall space, about 1,200 seats. The reverb is amazing, but it's not too washy and it's super tight. There's a couple of weird spots, but it's an unbelievable space to work in. And I was super lucky to be able to kind of hone my craft and my ears in that space for nearly seven years, six years. Oh, wow, six years. Well, that's kind of the thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, a lot of our listeners
0: maybe have not even had the opportunity to see a performance in a space like that, yet alone think about how you would record an ensemble in there. Can you run down, like, the process and philosophy of your day-to-day over there when it comes to, like, a small orchestra or all the way to, like, a trio?
1: Yeah, so when it would be an orchestral recording, we didn't record a ton of rehearsals early in the morning for a concert that night. So a lot of it was just based off of instinct and me failing a lot um, at, on the early side of it. But, <laughs> you know, cause it's like, you know, you're not gonna work, a they, they weren't gonna let you work cause they don't wanna pay you. A, right. You know, a, a 20 hour day to come in at 7.30 in the morning, set up mics for a 9 a.m. rehearsal, then stay all day and then do a 8 p.m. concert. But in terms of the approach, it was very much like you always have a standard building block when you're recording classical music. And the main, the main approach is some pair of microphones that are capturing the conductor's perspective because the conductor is the mix engineer and you want to lean into that expertise. And the conductor, he or she isn't necessarily mixing for their position. They're adjusting balances, knowing what it's going to sound like 10, 15 rows back in the hall. So what they're experiencing is not necessarily what they want the audience to hear, but they know kind of the level offset that they need to achieve with the the orchestra to make sure that the audience in the sweet spot, at least is, is gonna experience it and hear all of those counterpoint lines and all that stuff. So the big thing is you start with a pair of microphones that capture that perspective and usually, it's either a pair of cardioids and ORTF or NOS, and then flanked by a pair of omnis to get some width and get some space in the concert hall. If the space sounds really good, I usually would go for a pair of omnidirectional microphones about a meter apart. Uh, and if the orchestra is super wide and super deep, then I'll go for a Decatree, which is three omnis. I would always mod that a little bit and do um, two omnis with a wide card up front. Uh, just because it was a little a little more focused. But that would usually be my starting point, and then I'd supplement with, with spots. And basically my approach was a main pair, flank it with either just you know a pair of omnis to capture the width of the orchestra or pull them back to get a little bit more haul and then add something like a pair of woodwind spots. And then you can iterate from there based on the size of the orchestra or the size of the space or how much time you have for the setup. Cause (laughs) if you, if you're in a great hall, man with killer musicians who are practicing 10 hours a day and are just so tasteful and they are moving as one and you just put a pair of omnis up, you're going to get an absolutely fantastic recording, but you know, you do want to be able to pull out those woodwind lines and, and you know, capture a very specific brass solo moment that is, you know, in the second piece after intermission. So you work on a little bit of that. And then as you learn the repertoire, you know, this piece has this really rad xylophone thing. I'm going to put a spot mic up there.
0: Right. Right. Now for like somebody that it kind of has no idea, When you're talking about a spot mic in this situation, you're still talking about like 10 plus feet away, right? Or are you getting closer than that?
1: You could be, I mean, it depends on the source and it depends on what you can do. So one of the things that we weren't allowed to do, and part of this was an aesthetic thing because our ancient donors didn't like seeing mic stands on stage. We would fly everything in using servo reelers that came down from the ceiling and hung from install grade XLR cables, which was awesome. But it limited our ability to get super close because we couldn't adjust. And you didn't want to use wireless mics in that scenario and have stage crew move it, or you didn't want to rely on the stage crew to adjust your microphone positioning. So in right. this case, it was flying in like section spots. So you could be three feet away or three feet above a section if you could get it that tight. But if you're trying to, you know, put a, a, a base section spot in, you have to bear in mind that those bass players are going to be coming in with their seven and a half, eight foot tall upright bases, and they could be smacking your $3,000 DPA or Sheps. And it's <laughs> like, okay, well, maybe I'm going to raise that a little bit and go and put a hyper card and only spot the principal and not worry about the section. As I've done a bunch of other, worked with a bunch of other um, ensembles here in the Twin Cities, classical wise, they are much more amenable to mics on stage. So that case, I could put a FET-47 on the bass section and I could get right. a tiny Sheps mic that's on an active pole for the soloist right next to the conductor because it's visually not that obtrusive, but the stage crew also knows how to move it. And I usually have an A2 who can come in and make those moves on stage for me.
0: Right, Okay.
1: Yeah, man. I just think it was fun.
0: I just remember the one day I was there before I got fired. The um, <laughs> the <laughs> the 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 rigging system where like you guys moved microphones around in there was just so fascinating. I was like, this is amazing. And then you know, yeah. like going on to work at Capitol, like immediately the first thing you realize that the sound of strings and woodwinds and like it's not the close mic. It's it's the room. That's what you're recording. And in, in all of these like traditional instruments, you know.
1: Yeah, and it's a thing where you're learning to capture the, the group as a whole. Like the sum, the sum is greater than the parts in those environments. And, exactly. And yeah. it's like, you cannot get, like, I don't care how good you are. I mean, obviously if budgets are constrained, you know, you might do multiple passes of the same ensemble to create a thickness, but there is nothing that you can replicate. It, it's, it's really hard to replicate the sound of 15 violinists all playing in unison together with all these micro tonal shifts, you can't replicate yeah. that. And then there's something, and there's something incredible. I will say when the first time I was playing timpani in an orchestra in high school, never played in an orchestra before. And I remember being at the back of the orchestra and seeing all of the bows raise up in unison. And then they all pulled the first note. Like I got mildly emotional for you know, like a 15 year old who loved Dave Matthews band. Um, I was like, this is, this is like a surreal experience because you've not, you've only heard it on recordings or you've heard it on a film soundtrack. And then, but to hear it in person, it's just, it's an otherworldly experience the first time you, you, uh, you experience it. And then to be able to record that day in and day out for six years, come on.
0: Yeah, no, it's amazing. Yeah. I remember I talked about this on another episode. The first time I was at Capitol and we used to have to run around and like check the headphones and always make sure there was no open headphones because string players would bring their own. And then the, you know, conductor would usually start doing the first cue or first piece, just can everybody's getting their sounds. And man, when when like 30 strings start playing and you're like four feet away, it's it is like you said, it's like an emotional impact. You're like, wow. This is epic. Don't drop anything on these
1: violins. They're so expensive. <laughs> totally. Oh my God. It's like, you think our yeah. mics are expensive? You think a Fairchild is expensive? It's expensive. Like, God, yeah. these people take out like mortgages <laughs> and insurance on their hands.
0: I, I know. It's cr- I used to be scared shitless every time. Like, <laughs> A setup would come in, and it was like RCA forty fours, like oh, as spots over the strings, and you're just like, it's so heavy. Like, what if it falls? I don't want to be the one to plug it in and strap it up there.
1: <laughs> like, is, is the sound of this but, mic worth destroying
0: uh, a violin from the 1700s? <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. No Stradivarius should be damaged in the recording. Uh, all right. Well, that that's cool, man. I just I I was always you know fascinated by that world, and I, I never really get to do a lot of that type of recording, so I wanted I wanted to geek on that. But let's talk about your your switch into broadcast. How did you end up going from Boston to Minnesota? What
1: How'd you make the move? So my wife is from Minnesota. She was living in Boston at the time, working for the company that she was working for at the time. She got a job offer back here in the Twin Cities. And we said, you know what? It makes sense for us. Let's move back here. Didn't have a gig lined up. I didn't move here for my career. I just said, well, I'll, I'll figure something out. Uh, There was enough remote mixing at the time that I was, that could, um, you know, kind of make ends meet for me. I also was able to take like one summer and work at the Aspen Music Festival in school, which they have a massive classical music festival. So I did that my first summer after moving to the Twin Cities, but a position opened up at Minnesota Public Radio and more specifically the parent company, American Public Media, which, um has things, shows like Marketplace with Kai Rizdal, which you can hear um, all over the country. And they had a show at the time called WITS, W-I-T-S. And it was basically supposed to be a younger, hipper Prairie Home Companion. So more contemporary musicians, uh, comedians like Kumail Nanjiani or um, Pat Oswalt, people like that, and then do some interviews yeah. with authors and things. And I applied for the job because I was like, well, this is a perfect gig because my background is live event production and live concert production, mixing bands for a living, and doing a ton of live mixes. So all of the broadcast mixes for that were live to two. So it would be, you know, 60, 70 some inputs on an avid venue board. And I'm working directly with the front house engineer, the stage manager, coming up with stage plots. and figuring out all of the stuff and doing a little bit of tour management kind of work. And right. That's how I got into it. You know, taking the band's rider and saying, there's no way we're going to be able to give you 115 inputs. Like you're going to get 30. <laughs> this is what we can offer. Like we have a house band too. And so it's dealing with all of that stuff and then doing a live to two. Obviously I ran a multi-track, but most of the time it was live to two on a Friday night, taped the show hand the two mix over to the producer, she cuts it into our 52 minute show, hands it over to me, I clean up all the edits and all that stuff and do some studio voiceover tracking and then ship it out to 150 stations in the US. So that's kind of how I got into it. It was a little bit of serendipity, like my live event background and my live music recording and jazz and acoustic music stuff was more important for that gig than having a traditional broadcast background or podcast background. And, and, and even then that was 2014. So podcasts were still in their infancy and yeah. got that gig. And I did that for you know two years before that show got canceled because eventually what happened was Chris Thiele took over a Prairie Home Companion and turned it into the show uh, live from here. And so they said, well, we can't have two shows that compete, and this one isn't as good as his, and he's a MacArthur genius, so we're going to give it to him, and uh, (laughs) good luck. Stick around. Basically, what happened at that point was NPR said, we want to keep you around. Are you cool with just kind of floating and trying out a bunch of traditional news broadcast stuff? So that led into me driving Minnesota Public Radio's midday, early morning call-in shows doing a couple of those, working on classical music broadcasts. So I was able to leverage a lot of my classical music experience. I was doing live Minnesota opera broadcasts, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, Minnesota Orchestra. And then we had the station, um, it's a AAA station, which is like a contemporary music station. If you're familiar with KEXP in Seattle, we have The Current, which is in the Twin Cities, and they're a leader in that industry. And so we'd have bands come into our studio. And let me tell you, like, This was the selling point of the job. Like We had a 32-input Neve 88R and this massive, massive live room that used to be a bank that NPR bought it when they built their headquarters and they converted it into this space that was... It's big enough to hold a full chamber orchestra comfortably. And they used to do regular Sunday live broadcasts with chamber orchestra. So this is a massive room. And it's like, I did live sessions with Grizzly Bear in there. I've done... Just a bunch of stuff with bands that come through. And it was super rad to be like, oh yeah, I'll I'll record these bands live and do live tattoos on a on a fat knee. Like, let's go. Why wouldn't you?
0: Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So yeah,
1: so that's, so that's kind of how I got into the the broadcasting side of it. And obviously that included things like covering election nights and political debates and protests and riots and a lot of stuff in the last last year or so. And um, covering Prince's death. I was on the board when Prince died. Oh my God. Like I I remember being on the board for that and they said, we got an alert that said uh, the coroner's office just showed up to Paisley Park. We can't tell you more than that, but you should be prepared to sit in the chair for a couple of hours. And it turned out that Prince had died and they sent me out to Paisley Park with a generator and some remote codecs, and said, we're going to go live from Paisley Park. You're going to do hits with the BBC with our producers and hosts. And and they said, okay, stop that, drive back to First Avenue in downtown Minneapolis. You're actually going to do live sound for Prince Tribute. We're going to take over the entire street, do a block party. We're expecting about 2,000 people. 15,000, 10, 15,000 people showed up that night and Lizzo showed up and sang uh, Prince songs. Like what, what public radio station, what, what gig prepares you, what experience prepares you for that kind of gig? And it's like, that was one day. That's awesome. Yeah, it was that's it was amazing. ridiculous, and I was super super thankful to to be a part of that for a while, and that obviously led to podcasting because that's a natural arm of broadcasting, and um, that kind of that's that's kind of the the Cliff Notes version of that.
0: That's amazing. Well, I I took some notes. I want to go back to a few things. Some for me, some for our listeners. But please, a I just wanted for anybody that doesn't know, live to two is is basically you're printing the mix live down down to stereo. Um, so not a lot of room for mistakes because it's like you said, going to go straight to broadcast. Yep. Uh, But if you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. You you say driving the show is like, oh, I was on the desk for this morning show. Are you doing things like cueing transition music, muting microphones? Like what exactly are you doing when you're driving like a, a, a broadcast show like
1: that? So a lot of it is typically in the room, at least for this space, was you have a technical director, audio engineer, sitting in the chair, hands on the faders, and then you have a producer and a director. And sometimes those roles are a little fuzzy. But the director is calling the show and telling you which phone call to go to, what piece of music to queue up. So the way that we structure those shows, and most radio shows are structured, it's similar to anyone who is familiar with theater production. You have a rundown. Your stage manager is essentially the parallel to a director in the radio world. You have all of your elements stacked. So you've got your theme music. You've got the first cut, like in a host's intro she might be covering um, whatever happened in Congress that day. And we've got a couple of cuts from C-SPAN. We've got those lined up. Part of our job is going through those cuts, making sure that they got clean tops and tails and they're at our level spec. So that way I can put the fader at Unity and hit go. So a lot of the the consoles that we use are IP consoles, uh, audio over IP consoles. And so the fader, if it's a microphone attached to it, it's just on or off. But a lot of the faders are also connected to what's called a play-to-air system that has all of those audio elements stacked in order. And when you hit on, that also fires the cut. So when, when I have the fader up at Unity, I hit go. That turns the fader on and plays it and sends it out on your mix, which sends it out over the air. Other times, we might have something like we want to end the show at... AM exactly. And we want the music to end at 9.29. And so what we do is we pull the fader down, we say, here's how long the piece of music is in my head or with an app, uh, you back time it and say, okay, it's 9.29. It's a two minute piece of music. That means at 9.27, exactly. And so this is, if it's a perfectly round number, you have the fader down, you hit go but the fader's pulled down you hit go at 9:27 a.m. because it's exactly 2 minutes long that means as you start creeping up that fader to chase out the the guests or to let your host know that we're rapping, you pull that fader up boom that music ends exactly at 9:29 that's called yeah <laughs> it's called a dead roll or a uh, or you're back timing your music bed so that's a lot of the stuff that we're doing i may not be dictating the content but I'm working with the director to coordinate all of those elements. There may be times where I'll say, you know, uh, there's breaking news. We can't do a dead roll piece of music bed like that. And I say, you know what? We're actually not gonna be able to do that. I'm just gonna hit it as, you know, when, when I need to, and I'm gonna fade it up, and we're just gonna fade it out to whatever our post is. If our post, which is the end of that segment, is 929, I'm just gonna fade it down to give about a a second or a half second of silence right before we hit that post. So you are trying to hit all of these specific times. For a lot of these like daily call-in shows, all of those posts can be a little fuzzy. But if you're working on morning edition from NPR or all things considered, you have a clock that looks like a map that says you got this much time. You have 10 seconds to do this thing. Like we're going to, the NPR host from DC over the satellite feed that you're pulling up on the fader, you know that based on their notes that my director has, they're going to say, okay, on this piece, they're going to end the interview. And then there will be 15 seconds of music in the clear before that NPR host in DC says, you're listening to all things considered from national public radio. If I need to, for any particular reason, with my local host, I can dip out of that music and go to my local host and do a bunch of stuff. It is a dance and it is super stressful if you've never done it before. And I hadn't done any clock-based radio broadcast before. That's crazy. It's amazing and it's fun. And then it becomes second nature. You find that you your internal clock has now like adjusted and aligned with the broadcast clock for these specific shows. In terms of other like regular radio stuff, or audio stuff, you know, I'll put EQ and compression on my host and I'll be dialing in that stuff. If I have a guest who's coming in during a transition where we're airing a newscast from another studio, I might have their fader down, but I'll put it in like a preview, like a cue, like a pre-fade monitor that appears on a speaker to uh, the side of me in the control room. So not going out to air and I'll be able to talk down to them directly and say, can you tell me what you had for breakfast today? Or without looking at your shoes, can you describe your shoes for me? And I'll dial in their sound, set their level, ask them to scooch a little bit closer to the microphone, things like that. And then in the world of COVID, you're still on the board, but everybody's on IP codecs, So they're on Skype, they're on things like IPDTL, they're on services like you know Zencaster. There, there's a bunch of stuff where they're connecting from home on their crappy blue Yeti, over the internet and it's overly sibilant or they're talking to the top of their blue yeti. And so it's nothing but like room tone and I've oh, got yeah. to be able to correct that. And that's part of the fun of radio broadcasts is you don't have time for perfection. You just got to get it to sound good and get on air.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't think people, people aren't as affected by it, you know, cause you're listening to the program. You're listening to the words that are coming out of somebody's mouth. You're not really concerned with the background noise. I mean, I've I've had episodes that I wish I had cleaned up better or that had been recorded differently, but you know what? Nobody ever said, "Hey, man, this one sounded bad."
1: Yeah, and and, <laughs> and it's amazing. It's amazing how people have normalized. I don't want to say bad quality audio, but like people's threshold for acceptability has like become more sustainable as more people are being remote. But all the people who are remote. They tend to have decent rigs now at this point. And so it's like the two of us, we're we're talking over Google Chrome on two SM7s because I live in an open loft space next to a fire station. Yeah, I'm going to use a dynamic mic. I'm not going to grab like a U89 and throw it in front of me. Like, give me a hammer. I just need a hammer. That's
0: right. You just need, need to get the job done. Can we go back to the beginning of COVID? I didn't even think about this. Was there like a big scramble to figure out how to continue to put shows on? I mean, I guess like ISDN and stuff has been around for a long time. So you probably did a lot of gigs that way, but it had to just, it had to get out of hand there for a second to try to figure out how to continue, right?
1: Yeah. It's the thing. It was the unknown that was more scary than, than anything else is we didn't know how bad this was going to get. Things that we did was we said, okay, well, We don't want to keep people in the same room. So the engineer will be in the control room. Host will be in the live room through the glass, isolated, two different rooms, two different air handling systems. But what do we do with the producer? What do we do with the director? And sometimes it was producer's going to call in and be on one of the phone lines. I just keep it on a down fader. So it's down, but it's on so they can hear the program and I can talk to them. And the director might be in the next door studio listening to the programming and using our ClearCom system to cue me for stuff. So it was separating people that way. But the way that APM and NPR did things sometimes was we started leveraging this audio over IP system. So there was uh, a lot of virtual codecs. So you mentioned ISDN. So that's over traditional phone lines. And a lot of phone companies are ripping out that copper out of the ground and saying, ISDN is not available anymore, bud. Like you're gonna have to figure it out. So it's the rise of IP codecs over over the web. So Telos, you know, Comrex, if anyone's doing done any broadcast stuff, Comrex is probably the leader. Comrex created a more consumer grade uh, system called Opal where a user will do similar to what we do, we're doing here now Travis is they connect to a web interface, they hit they pick their input and output device, they hit connect and that pings a piece of hardware back in our control room. And I dial that source up on the fader. And when I dial it up, they get my back feed, They get my mix minus and I hear them, but I also get talk back. So what we ended up doing was we leveraged that for our directors and said, you can be at home. You can have your rundown of the show up on one screen. You can have call screening capability. So call screening is how we, how we don't let people who shouldn't be on air uh, not be on air. It's not a free for all. It's not like those like awesome C-SPAN uh, late night TV shows where anybody gets on. It's very, it's very curated to the conversation. Right. <laughs> and so they can do that from home because it's all IP because the company's phone system is all audio over IP. So we just tap oh, into wow. that and they have a web interface I, instead of a hardware phone interface. But then they can also talk to me over their headset mic. So we give them like an Audio-Technica headset mic or whatever USB Plantronics headset, video, you know, web conferencing mic, and they can talk down the line to me. And I can always keep them up on a speaker in my left ear, if that's where the speaker is. And they can cue me. And the delay is less than half a second. So we're good. They can still direct the show remotely from their home. So that's what people were doing a lot of the time. And in some cases, the hosts were remote. And in that case, it was We go to their home, we outfit some soundproofing and uh, kill a lot of early reflections in their spare office, give them the same microphone that they have in the studio, You know, might be a great river preamp that we use in our studios. Sometimes we would bring in the crane song compressors and install them at their house and give them the full signal chain. And then it would hit a primary and redundant codec that they never have to touch. We can manage it remotely. Boom, it pops up on a fader, and I have my primary host fader and my backup host fader. That way, if one connection dies, I got the second connection right there, and each of those connections are, um, it's called dual-nicked, so it's like a, it's a IP internet thing. They have their standard Comcast home internet, and then we say, all right, well, who's the other service provider in the area? Oh, it's CenturyLink on DSL? Great, let's create a bonded network. That way, one fails over to the other all the time, so... That's how people were able to host from home.
0: That's crazy. That, yeah, that's, it was uh, wild.
1: It was, I tell you, the month of March of 2020, for everybody for various reasons, but especially if you were working in broadcasting, it was wild, man. It was a total trip. I love
0: the absolute nerd details. <laughs> okay, so you hit so many things, like my my brain is exploding with all the the tech that you just made me aware of that I just want to like read about absolutely pointlessly, by the way. (laughs) I just want to read about all of it. I'm never going to use any of it, but let's get into it off the technical side a little bit. Is there anything you, you mentioned on your website that you do a lot of like workflow system design, technical training stuff with a lot of the teams you work with? Obviously, running a daily or a weekly show takes like a tight schedule and a well put together system. Is there anything you've learned in the broadcast world on keeping those things running that you think applies to making a record?
1: Yeah, I would say it's sometimes what's the quote? It's easier to be done than finished. And and sometimes that <laughs> is like, you got to get out of your head. Going back to a mix at three o'clock in the morning to obsessively t- tweak the harmonic resonance of the secondary snare drum on the third chorus is not something that's going to matter most of the time. True. And really what it, what it comes down to is you've only got one shot a lot of the time where you have a really tight deadline. You're never going to go back to it because your listeners, this is what's different about broadcasting from records is that listeners will go back to the record a million times. But for a lot of daily or weekly podcasts, they're going to listen to it within a you know a respectable time frame, And then most people aren't going to touch it again. We're going to see downloads drop off. But the thing that I find that has really made me a better engineer is instead of emphasizing the specifics about every individual element, it's really zooming out and thinking about the big picture. Like, is this music bed too loud? Is this element clear at all of these volumes? So, you know, I don't know how you mix your records, but I always listen really, really, really quietly. We're talking like 15, 20 DBSPL to kick snare and vocal, or bass snare and vocal and i want those to be the last yeah. things that i hear before that those speakers shut off generally that's similar to broadcasting when you turn it down all the way when somebody's driving their minivan and their kids are punching each other in the face in the background when they turn down their radio you should still hear that npr newscaster or the host of your podcast even if there is you know a, like a death metal track underneath like you know what you, you may not hear the aesthetics Of whatever scene that you have meticulously built for your precious audio documentary, but you can still hear the person who's narrating. And so, my thing is, and it's, I I will tell you, being a broadcast engineer has made me a better mix engineer for music because you do have to zoom out so much and not be as obsessive about all of the individual elements. That's kind of the thing. What's important? Yeah.
0: Yeah, It's the the vocal is always king, assuming you're doing a, a song with vocals. And the same thing with what yeah, your post is at all time the most important thing that's happening.
1: Yeah. And it's and it's really, and maybe it's me getting older and like like you said earlier, like it's a quality of life thing too. It's like, do I really care about this? Or is anybody really gonna care about this? Or does the essence of the song, does the vibe really benefit from me spending six more hours on this thing? And if the answer is no then i just stop working on it and i move on to something else maybe that's why i'm in podcasting and broadcasting and not making records like maybe that's the well, point i mean
0: i i don't know what well, you're 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 like right on the edge of like perfectionism you're dancing around the fact that like you can always continually to strive to make whatever you're doing quote perfect but it's like the difference between 95% and 101% is you know Nobody knows about those last 6% except for you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're the yeah.
0: only one that knows that 14 hours is what made the difference from 99 to 100. Yeah. But
1: so, and, I, and I but I but I will say like I've gotten really sensitive to how dialogue, spoken word is edited cuz I've I've had to be. That's that's the medium that I've worked in. And yeah. it's made me a better vocal comper for records because you know, I've, I've learned so many tricks with how to edit dialogue that also applies to music. And it's stuff that I wasn't as good at before I got into broadcasting. It's little things like I'll get stuff from producers where certain words or phrases will be edited next to each other, but the way that they crossfade the breath, I'm like, that's not how you would breathe. Like when you breathe in, there's that little bit of a vacuum of silence, right? And like, yeah. you're not going to breathe in and then immediately be able to say the word. And so it's making those little tweaks and then getting really good and really fast at those that when I'm on deadline, one, I know what they look like now. And two, like I can stay <laughs> ahead of the cursor. Like I could be qc my mix and be making those edits as long as I'm 15, 20 seconds in front of the 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 cursor and be like, oh, no, it's totally fine. But it's it's little things like that. I guess like the... The things that I obsess over have changed, because it's had to. Like, you know, if you have a ton yeah. of noise, if you have a ton of HVAC stuff, or even a little bit of HVAC stuff, you're gonna want to layer in room tone underneath your entire dialogue track. Because if it goes to to digital black, it's gonna sound bad. If you can't put a 15 second fade on the back of that, um, yeah. So it's like you've gotta you've gotta layer it in. So whether that's geeking out and doing isotope ambience match things, or you're finding a 30 second bit of room tone and just layering that in underneath your dialogue gaps. It's, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird obsession. It's my burden. It's my cross to bear.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm taking notes over here because, you know, I fight that battle on my editing. Not that anybody wants to hear about my podcast editing. I definitely have just come to accept the fact that you know, as it transitions from somebody on mic to somebody that was not on mic, that a lot of stuff's going to disappear in the background. And me being the record maker has never thought like I need to put an ambient sample behind this to keep this level of consistency throughout the show. Yeah. So. Um, I, I. So I, yeah, I, let me know. Send me an invoice. Let me know what I owe you oh for God. that
1: tip. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what. Like the the same way that I listen back to mixes, like a lot of people have their own tricks. Like they turn off their display when they listen to their mix. One of the ways that when I'm cueing, if I'm the last person that's going to listen to it before it publishes, which is how it works when we mix the daily for the New York Times. I work for the New York Times. Um, the uh, <laughs> that's a joke that goes over about fifty percent of the time. Um, <laughs> when I'm the last person that listens to it, I don't look at the edits. I just I just listen to it, and I only go back and make a tweak. If something distracts me and everybody has their own little quirks and mechanisms to help them. Like some people just mindlessly scroll Twitter and don't actually read Twitter, but just, you know, scroll on their phone because it mimics how your audience is going to listen a lot of the time. At least in the podcasting space, they're usually doing something because it's a passive listening experience. And so that's how I get, that's how I meet deadlines. That's how I get through stuff, which is, that's kind of how I, let things drop below my threshold and be like, you know what? That's fine because the essence still comes through and yeah, there's a weird background noise or there was a siren in the background, but I don't have time to go in and clean that up and it's going to be fine for what it is. Everybody knows that you're in a space.
0: Yeah. Well, and things happen. People are, people are doing things. Okay. So now since I admitted my poor editing, now I have to admit that I, I basically do that. So my first edit of the podcast is, you know, trimming space and removing ums for anybody listening. I don't really edit content. I just make everybody sound as smart as possible. But the conversation is the conversation. But the second pass I do, I do while I'm like typing my social media and prepping and doing the show notes and everything. And it, and it's passive. In the background, I just have Pro Tools running. And if there's something that sticks out to me in that passive listen, then I go and check it and then I move on. And um, so, yeah, I just Pat myself on the back on that
1: one. Yeah. You, no, it's it's exactly <laughs> right. Like you have all these, it's it's kind of like the um was like the Chris Lord Algae way of mixing where he's like got a ton of pieces of outboard gear that he never touches and he's just like, oh this vocal is gonna want to run through 1176 number 12. And yeah. you know we just have we have mixed templates, right? That's what mixed templates are for. It's to help us get 80% of the way there. And yeah. you know, for a lot of the stuff that I'm mixing now, what that has a tight turnaround, you're absolutely right that I'm putting a live voice denoise on some of those tracks and I'm putting a subtle gate on there and I'm comping it a certain way and I'm running it through a dialogue bus that has an automatic loudness level or like I'm doing all of the things like these tools exist like spend the money and save your time like it's going to do it for you and with you yeah well deadlines force
0: you to to create a system that gets the job done as best as possible within the deadline. And yeah, there's plenty of tools that you can grab and it's the experience that you get while you're doing things for years where you you realize what's important. Like if I only have eight hours to finish something, these are the things that I have to do and these are the things that'll be
1: extra in that eight hours, you know? And that's part of the gig that I have now, which is workflow and systems design. And that's things like, how do we name our files when they come in from guests? How do we all collaborate? You know, cause I have a team of 60 people, not me personally, but there's 60 people on our team, including six engineers. We work in Dropbox because even if we were in a centralized office, there's still enough people that are geographically diverse that we have to send sessions back and forth. So we all work out of yeah. Dropbox directly and we're not working on external drives. We're working on Dropbox directly and we're collaborating on sessions. So if three producers need to be in the same Pro Tools session, we don't use Pro Tools, Cloud, whatever. It's save as, open up that session and you're working in there while producer producer B is working in one session, producer A is working in another. And they have all these edits that go back and forth. And then it's training producers on how to use Clip Groups, which if you haven't used Clip Groups in Pro Tools, it's freaking rad. And then import session data to be able to get You know, producer A might cut the first half of the interview, producer B might cut the second half of the interview, and then producer A will import session data from producer B's session. And training our producers to learn how to do that stuff in a really concise, clear way is really important. And part of that is we have a session template. There's only so many tracks. And so when they import session data, the session that producer B is working in is the same exact track format as session A. And so they're able to dump that stuff in there. And then when they're done and they deliver it to the R engineer in London to mix the show for the daily specifically, we apply our mix template, which includes our fab filter plugins and power and you know voice denoisers and all that stuff. And it's the same track format. So it all just applies. And so it's what, yeah. are, what are the shortcuts that we can make? And they're not even shortcuts. It's just being smart about the tools you have with the platform you're you have. Like, it's not, yeah. like, it's not bad. Like, it's, that's what the tools are there for. If you don't want to use them, then, like, enjoy not having dinner with your family. Like. <laughs>
0: I know. I was, uh, I was such a, like, an anti-mix templater, you know, for, like, I mean, far too long, you know. The number of times that I probably made an ox and put a Valhalla Vintage Curb <laughs> on it and loaded the same setting is mind-blowing. Like I did it for years because I thought that if I used a template, everything would sound the same. Yeah. I mean, what, like, what was I thinking?
1: Like it's, it's.
0: I'll never get that time back.
1: It's, I'll send you, I'll send you my, my, my podcast template uh, at some point. But my thing is like, when I set up a producer template, I've got like four host tracks and 10 guest tracks in case they're doing a long form narrative thing where they might have 10 recurring characters and they want to, and like, it's just, no, put each person on their own track. I'll give them... Oh, it's great. Genius. I'll give them 20 music beds, so that way each music bed is on their own track. That way when I get it for the mix, I can apply specific settings to each music bed. And what I don't tell them is that in the background, each music bed has its own dedicated aux that has two reverbs and a delay inactive on it, and all the buses are set up. That way on each one I can go, you know what? This music bed is a little dry. Click, click, boom. Now I'm sending it to a reverb. And it all sums into my music subgroup. And that's all hidden to them. They don't see any of that stuff. But what they see is a bunch of tracks. And I'm just like, don't solo stuff. Like, it's going to be a problem if you like to solo things too much.
0: Don't solo stuff. That's uh, That's awesome. I have two questions that I end the show with. But before we hit those, before we started, you were talking about, you're working for New York Times. Obviously, you're still in Minnesota. New York Times is in New York. You were talking about, being able to control sessions with the the IP protocols. What what are you doing? This is this is a nerd moment that might get chopped out, I'm not sure.
1: It's so this is super wild and a lot of this technology existed pre-COVID, but it was accelerated by a lot of the the vendors during COVID cuz every major broadcaster, TV, radio, especially in sports broadcasting too, they all needed to be able to do a bunch of stuff remote, whether it was the host or the engineer or the producer. And so a lot of our consoles are Telos Axia consoles. So they're all, they're basically giant mice. They're all control surfaces that all of the audio is routed through gigabit or fiber ethernet switches, and these consoles control everything um, over IP. If they're on IP and on the company network, and I'm on the company network when I'm at home... I can enter the custom IP address of the engine or like the head of that particular studio. And then I can open up a graphical representation of that console. And I can say, if a producer says, you know, Congressman a in DC can't hear us over the Comrex connection that I have pulled up. Why not? And I say, well, let me go into the console. I pull it up and I say, well, You forgot to turn the fader on, and when you don't have the fader turned on, they don't hear programming. Or the auto mix minus isn't working a certain way. Or you didn't pull up the right preset console profile. Um, Or they say, why does my host sound really quiet? Uh, Well, this other preset that we have is set to to line level, not mic level. Let, Let me go in and make a couple of changes, click it, and then just have them talk down the line, and then I can watch the meter and make a change in real time. And in more advanced systems, I can essentially dial myself into the studio over an IP codec to be able to listen on my own speakers at home. I basically pull myself up as a source on the board and then listen to it. (laughs) That's awesome. This episode
0: is just blowing my mind in tech. You know, I just thought of one more, if you've got a minute, one more thought for you. Sounds like you're mostly in the podcast space now. Obviously, that is like rapidly growing, especially with like the massive Spotify investments and it seems like everybody's making a push. Where do you think podcasting is going? Is it still ramping up hard? Is it at the top of its, you know, journey? We're like,
1: from somebody that's in it deeper than I am, what do you think? I think we're we're still on the rocket ship. And at some point... I'd say we got about 30% of fuel left in the tank before we hit our, hit our apex. This is the natural growth of the industry is that you are getting these big players like Spotify, like Apple, who's now investing in their own podcast. And the signal that we're approaching this new era, which the apex will follow shortly thereafter, is all of this consolidation by big media companies. So you're seeing Amazon that has Audible, You've got Spotify acquiring people left and right. New York Times, we've acquired individual podcasts from public media companies. One of the podcasts I mix, Modern Love, was through WBUR in Boston. They either did or couldn't produce it anymore. I don't know the backstory, but the Times was like, this is good content. We're gonna buy it and we're gonna take the IP and we're gonna make it our own show. So I think we're nearing that. And I think people have started to be fatigued by the overwhelming amount of choice that they have for those who haven't listened to podcasts. So they're going to trust these known brands. This is why like NPR, their podcasts are always in the top five because, oh, NPR, it must be good. New York Times, oh, it must be good. But now you're gonna start to see a lot more through niche markets, but they're still pretty big. Like if you subscribe to The Athletic, which is an independent for-profit sports company that employs so many sports journalists over the, across the country and across the world, They've gotten into audio and I'm going to gravitate toward that as, you know, like a soccer fan, because I know that those people are the smartest people in the industry. And I want to hear what they have to say, even if it is, here's a theme song, two dudes are going to talk at each other for an hour like this. And then here's, (laughs) here's, here's an outro. That's fine. That's a thing. And I think the on-demand space that people want to listen when they can listen is gonna be huge. I do think that there will be a retraction at, or yeah, retraction at some point where the industry will get a little bit smaller. It will consolidate a little bit and then it'll normalize for a while. But I don't think terrestrial radio is going away. I don't think the independent podcasters going away. It's just, there's more of it. Yeah. I do think that it, there's a medium-sized independent podcast company that is looking to get acquired and they may get acquired. They may run independently for five or six years, but then they'll get spun off or uh, fully absorbed into whatever Amazon or Spotify or Apple. And there will just be one fewer versions of these independent podcast networks. Right. And so hiring is crazy right now. Like people, there's like, I'm hiring like four people right now. So um, holler, check out the New York Times audio page. Uh, you know, <laughs> apply. And um, I'll recuse myself from the interview because we're all too cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it was something else I was going to ask is do you think, I feel like there is a lot of work in this podcast space. Like if you're a young engineer or a recent grad and you're just, you need to get your feet in somewhere, would you recommend looking into editing and mixing? And Yeah. And there's even sound effects and, and music going into these well, things. It, now, so. Yeah,
1: I, I, I do think, I think that it's like a, For those who wanted to get into it to go into music production, like it will feel like a step back for a little while, but I tell you, it's not. It's incredibly rewarding to be in this space. I'm totally fulfilled by it. A lot of our engineers on my team are also really talented musicians and they compose all of the music for all of our podcasts. So Uh in addition to mixing and doing the post-production, they're also working directly with producers to create original scores for every show that we produce. And that's an entirely different conversation and I'm not really good at it. I play drums, I got my roll-in kit over here and I hook it up to Superior Drummer and I'm like, your drums suck on that. Let me at least play something mildly better and you can add that to your, to your music cue. But that's a great way to get in. A lot of places are looking for people who can do original music composition. But for young grads or for people who are burnt out on the studio scene, You've got chops, you know what a good balance sounds like. Go after a gig. You know, it might not be, you might need to get in and prove what you can actually do and how fast you are in Pro Tools and your organizational skills and all of that. But it's totally worth getting into. And there's a lot of great spaces, especially in the public media nonprofit space. They're always looking for contractors and younger, I don't want to say inexperienced, but younger engineers- who are early in their career they're looking for people like that to come in and help them out just churn content out because all of these places that are still doing live radio are also trying to do podcasts and so the work just keeps coming yeah
0: awesome all right so now i've i've hinted at ending twice maybe three times It's now. like so it's like it's actually... like
1: Lord of the Rings there's like 12 endings
0: Exactly it just keeps going keeps going I've got two questions now that i throw out at the end of the show the first one is a new one. Has there been a time up until now in your career that you chose to redefine what success means to you or what success was to you?
1: Yeah, I would say well, let me let me tell you the best piece of advice that I ever got. And I, I talked about Mark Wessel, who was a professor at Berkeley. I I was very, very close with him. Um professionally, he was a he was a huge mentor for me. And one of the the pieces of advice that he gave me as i was nearing my end you know of my senior year at berkeley was don't move where there's work move where you want to live and find work and make work for yourself um i'm paraphrasing that but that has been a huge mantra that i've that i've kind of stuck to over my entire career it's one of the reasons that i didn't move to new york la or nashville and i was fine staying in boston i liked boston I happened to be able to find work there. I think there would have been a, I was also very lucky. Like, don't get me wrong. I was very lucky to find work there. But that's kind of been the main theme of my career is I I want to, like, I'm really interested in this work and making records and working with musicians and making art and being creative and getting in the weeds on the tech. But I still just want to hang out with my wife. And a lot of it was, yeah, when you meet, when you meet a significant other or you have a really close knit group of friends and a support system, or there's a hobby that's totally separate from this career that you've built, you want to make time and space for that. And I think the older we all get, we want to make space for that. And so that, that could be, you know, you have some really close neighbors and you just want to crack open a beer and, and hang out with them and vent about your day or, you know, um, your best friend had a kid and it's their fifth birthday party. You're like, you know what? I don't need to revise this mix today. I can do that tomorrow morning. I'm gonna go over to this thing. Yeah. And and that's like, it evolves like that. And I've been lucky enough to be able to have the opportunity to tailor my work life and my personal life and make them really intertwined, but they also respect each other. And it's, and it's really balanced.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree with, all of that I mean you know as you get older your priorities change and it's not that you don't want to do great work or that you don't want to do your best work or that you're not willing to do the 20 hour day when you need to do it but you start to realize that it's not always necessary and in the end you know I mean if you have 100 Grammys and you know a couple Ferraris but you're real bitter and pissed about it like was it worth it? You could just have 98 you could have 98 Grammys
1: yeah Yeah. I think, I think the cutoff is like 99 is when you get 99, you're like, okay, you know what? Now it's time for the work-life balance. I mean, the other side of it is like, it's like Y2K. You're not allowed to roll into three digits. Yeah. Yeah. The other side of it is like, I just get up early now and I want to go to bed (laughs) and I'm sore all the time, Travis. Like, (laughs) like, I don't think there's any amount of ibuprofen that I couldn't take. I, I hear you. Well, you act,
0: you exercise though, because you you ride your bike all the time, right? I ride
1: my bike. Like we live in Minnesota, so there's like a eight million different lakes, like five five miles from us. So we just bought a tandem kayak. Like we didn't buy a tandem bike; we bought like like a tandem kayak and a tandem. You know, we yeah. we enjoy the outdoors. I ride my bike and my fat tire bike in the winter, and it's there, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothes. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. There's yeah, there's, there's absolutely one dark day, shit weather. It's <laughs> just covered
0: in snow. Um, you know, one day on this podcast, I'm going to get into, you know, actually exercising and moving because nobody, nobody that does what we do or like music producers, like you just sit all day long and then you complain about how bad you hurt. You just have
1: to do something like just move. Jesus. I tell you what, when I started at the times or right, right before that, I put my whole rig on a standing desk and it has been delightful.
0: nice. Nice. Good move. Good move. All right. So the traditional ending question, the finale. I, sw- I swear that I'll, I'll actually end the show, <laughs> is uh, what, <laughs> what right now is uh, your biggest goal uh, that you can share? Obviously, you work for a big company. And what is the next smallest step that you're going to take towards it?
1: I would say my biggest thing is, so a lot of these major companies and even smaller nonprofit podcast houses are hiring a ton of producers who are either former journalists younger audio engineers and audio producers. My whole thing right now is empowering them to feel comfortable with the tech and the baseline audio engineering fundamentals to be able to chase creative stuff with their storytelling. Amazing. I don't want to record an interview ever again in my entire life. I don't want to edit (laughs) a show ever again. I want a producer who's got the creative juices to be like, I'm going to go after this And I'm going to fire up my sound toys, plugins that our engineers have given us. And we're going to tweak the shit out of stuff. And I want, I want to give them the power to go after things. And that may be things like, you know, understanding how to do proper volume automation and being patient with them or teaching them keyboard shortcuts and being an educator and not holding engineering information close to the chest for job security, because, if they can focus on all of that stuff and deliver a session to me, it's a little like selfish too. It's, I don't I don't wanna have to do the dumb stuff. I wanna sit back and be a mix engineer and I wanna make their yeah. thing a better version of itself by not focusing on the little things. But also when they eventually get a promotion and move over to another company, I want to be able to be excited about listening to the thing that they're gonna produce because I know that their chops are stellar and they're not even thinking about the audio engineering fundamentals. They're just going after creative storytelling, even if it is a dumb five minute news headline show. I know it's gonna sound great because this group of producers that my team worked with and we collaborated with, because I have a lot to learn from them because they end up stumbling on stuff that I don't even think about because I'm so in my head. It's, I want to be excited to see, to see and watch them grow. And I think as all of us kind of are entering the early stages of middle age, it's our responsibility to, to mentor the next generation and nobody's going to school for podcasting. It doesn't exist. You know, news journalists aren't going to have a pod. They might have a podcasting intro course, but if you're going to go work for one of these major companies or a smaller one, you know. I I'm invested in what these people can do and I just want to make I wanna round out their skill set with going forward. And so one of the ways that I do that is just making space and making time for people during the day when somebody calls you to ask for help. If you can help, help.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I love it. That's a really good one. I I, I enjoy that answer. I think that applies to a lot more than the specific, you know, point of your uh
1: yeah, you're it's 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 the same I think, thing. I mean I think there's and,
0: a lot to take away there.
1: Yeah, and we've all and we've all had those those people in our lives. You know, you know, you were working in studios for however many years. You have people that took you under their wing and spent extra time with you, or maybe you didn't, and you just figured it all yeah. out on your own because you're Travis. <laughs> that's
0: that's not true. That's not true. Well, Corey, this was great, man. I really enjoyed catching up. I'm glad you're doing well. Uh, I'm glad you know Minnesota is not snowing currently. But uh, yeah, dude, thanks so much for coming. Do you want to share a website or social media with anybody? Yeah,
1: yeah. To you, can, you? you can always check me out um, at coreyschrupple.com or on the socials at various places. There's not too many of us. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, go listen to anything that the New York Times produces and but still donate to your local public radio station. Amazing. Thank you so much, man. Thanks for taking the time. This is
0: great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for episode 44. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you to Corey for coming on the show. Be sure to check him and his work out. Also, I think he brought up a great point at the very end. If you are able to support your local public radio station, please do so. They provide a lot for their communities. Also, a special thanks to our newest Patreon supporters. There were five of you this week. You know who you are, and I greatly appreciate you. And if you have not left a review or shared the show with a friend or a stranger on the street, it would be so helpful to the growth of the show if you consider doing so. We are coming dangerously close to a full year of progressions, and I've got big plans for next year, so I really do hope to make a positive impact on as many people as possible. And sharing the show will do that. And finally, please join us over at completeproducer.net and join in our conversations over there. They are always a great time, and I will see you next week.